Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Victoria J. Victoria is a folklorist, writer, podcaster and author whose areas of research include demonic experiences, narratives and phenomena. She runs a blog called The Demonic Folklorist and her first book, The Black Hours, Modern Demonic Experiences and Folklore, is due to come out in October 2023. I begin the interview by talking with Victoria about her own experience that prompted an interest in demons. We then discuss the enigmatic nature of what these entities might be, and also what they aren't, how they are primarily contextualised via the root of ritual magic and religion, what drives their hostility towards humans, and the role pop culture has played in a modern understanding of these beings in the Western world. Victoria has also developed her own system for identifying a demonic presence using the five senses as a measure, which we talk about in some detail, along with a couple of well-known cases of demonic possession. All in all, a very suitable subject for this time of year. Enjoy! Victoria, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. What set you on the path to becoming a demonic folklorist? So I actually had a possession experience when I was 19 and um, I had looked into demons because naturally that's what I thought it was. It, my research actually showed me that that's not what it was, but that came years and years later. And it was also because I had originally had this idea about doing horror movies and fairy tales and what the relationship was for my thesis work when I was doing folklore graduate school. But I ended up not enjoying the company of the teacher who would have been helping me the most. So I was like, okay, got to pick something else. And I landed on demons because it was what I actually knew quite a bit about already. Right. Okay. Are you comfortable talking about that experience you mentioned? Yeah, no problem. Um, So let's see, how did that one begin? It was really just... I had gone through multiple heartbreaks in my life at the time, and then suddenly I just got very, very ill out of nowhere. And it was mostly the fact that I wasn't sleeping, and it was because I was scared to go to sleep. I started to see horrific things every single time I went to sleep. And 
I stopped being able to eat. I would throw up everything I ate. Like things got very, very bad very quick for me. And I woke up in a hospital after I had been dosed um, with medicine to make me go to sleep. And something else was looking out through my eyes and talking through me. And I just sort of sat there dormant. So yeah, like it was just a very strange experience. And then I don't remember three days of my life, like at all. There's just nothing there. And I woke up with a cigarette in my hand and I don't smoke and tried to figure out where I was. I didn't even have my glasses on and I'm blind as a bat without them. So it's, yeah, it was very strange. And then I had to figure out where I was. I was in a mental institution and I had no memory of going there. Oh, wow. Okay. And so how do you begin to process something like that? How, how did you find a way to try and understand what happened without scaring yourself to death? It must have been incredibly traumatic. It was, yeah. Um, and then I went through a bit of a relapse about a year later on that anniversary. But that one was a lot less scary. So when did, what ended up happening is that I kept reliving the trauma of it and I wrote it down in a story. And that helped me a lot to just get it out so that it wasn't actively haunting me anymore. And then after that, I had started, like I already had done a little bit of research before this, um, but not nearly the deep dive that I did after that. It helped for me to know what had possibly happened. And yeah, that's how I came to terms with it, just doing more and more research. But yeah, it just sort of came up again during folklore school and it was like oh well I guess I could look deeper into this has anyone ever done anything with demonic folklore and nobody ever had so yeah and then I had to write about it for the thesis itself and that was also very cathartic um, I've lost a lot of the details over the years but it helped a lot and then I had to redo that again for my book so yeah, like I, I guess like the more I tell the story, the more that I write it down, it helps for it not to have any power over me. It's just a thing that happened to me now. That's just how I see it. Hmm. And so did you come to a conclusion as to what you what it was that you experienced? Unfortunately, I haven't yet. It's still a little bit of a mystery. Um, it is it has something to do with mirrors being pointed at my bed. I had a few uh, pointed at my bed for a few years and yeah, it has something to do with that because I became deeply frightened of mirrors during this experience. And then I had a girl who reached out to me after my thesis had been published. People kind of lightly stalked me actually a little bit before my, um, my website came out and yeah, they asked me like, or they had said like, oh, well, I think I had like a really similar experience. So she told me about it. And I asked her, did you have mirrors pointed at your bed? And she's like, yeah, actually, I had a lot of them. And I'm like, you need to take them down now. So, and then I asked her like, do you have psychic ability? Because I do, it runs in my family. And she was like, yeah, actually I do. So I think 
it has something to do with those two factors. And so far in my research, because I'm working on a gin book right now, I don't believe it was a gin. It might have been a dybbuk from um, Jewish folklore, but I'm not sure yet. And I'm hoping that my research, as I keep expanding and looking into other spirit subtypes, that I'll be able to figure out what happened. Mm. So you mentioned that your psychic abilities, were they something that you were familiar with before this incident in your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I had grown up with them. My mom is psychic and my sister is too. So I just, I already had sort of like a built-in community to talk about like my strange experiences. I noticed it when I was about eight or nine. Um, and my mom noticed it when I was three. So yeah, just, I, I have all sorts of like, I kind of like run the gamut when it comes to psychic abilities. I have almost everything except for clairvoyance. So I don't see things. Right. Yeah. So when you're at folklore school, um, what sort of uh, context are, are, are demons um, discussed there? I mean, because when I, I guess when I think of demons, I, I probably think initially of um, of them through religion or ceremonial magic or something like that. But in, term, mm -hmm. in terms of folklore, what what sort of things were you talking about and, and researching? So folklore hasn't really looked very deeply into demons. Um, I found a few things that were related to other things like satanic panic, um, Ouija boards, that sort of thing, but nothing specifically on the behavior of demons, which is what I was most interested in. I wanted to know what they could and could not do. And I wanted to organize that information. So that's where my thesis came from. Um, but mostly it, the small amount of folklore work with demons had been done more in antiquity or in um, medieval times. So people looking at like, oh, what were kind of demons up to in the past? Nothing really had been done in modern times, but I think that actually fell more under maybe historians than like actual folklore studies. So there, there really wasn't a lot to go off of and that, that made it extremely difficult. Uh, to do my study. Yeah, I can I can imagine. So how did you go about doing that? What what areas of information were you able to find that, that did help with that? So I did um, like uh, my thesis advisor, Lisa Gabbert, she's amazing. She helped me so much. Um, we looked into classification systems, how they had been done previously and looked very heavily at the ARN Thompson um, Uther index, which was is the fairy tale index. It's how folklorists trace ancestry and similarities between tale types, like Cinderella, Rapunzel, that sort of thing. Um, there was that. We looked into let's see, supernatural folklore, which has been studied extensively. Um, and then just to establish the study. And then what I did was I used the published accounts of Ed and Lorraine Warren um, because essentially, like, there is that idea like, oh, like, 
is anything they wrote real? In folklore, it doesn't matter if it's real. It matters if it's believed. Hmm. So it didn't really matter to my study whether or not they had been completely truthful in their books. So I used, um, I actually used quite a bit more than what my thesis advisor thought I should use. She was like, you're doing too much, Victoria. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I had like maybe mapped out like seven or eight books and she was like, let's pare it down to three. <laughs> I was like, okay. So yeah. Um, and then I ended up expanding it for my website and then expanding it even further for my book and adding a possession classification system, which was not in the original thesis. Right. Yeah. Um, on your website, you have information on other types of supernatural entity that possess people and other types of negative paranormal experiences and, and beings. That seems like a good way to sort of help define what a demon might be in terms of what it's not, I guess. Is that is yeah. that something you found? It, yeah, I've definitely found that. I actually prefer to classify demons by what they can do instead of what they are, because the truth is we don't know what they are. Hmm. Um, religion provides an interpretation of what they are, but unfortunately it's not cold, hard facts. I'm trying to do this in a more scientific way, looking at the data, the sort of things that they can do. So when I introduce like what a demon is to an audience, because um, I go to paranormal conventions and such, I tell people that they are hyper-intelligent, that they can produce negative miracles, that they're always marked by an evil presence and an intensity of phenomena, as well as malice. So these are the things that really isolate what a demon is instead of what they're not, because we don't know what they are, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I, I I get that. It's I, I imagine with the, the, by their very nature, it's hard to begin to understand what that might be. Um, mm -hmm. Just going back to what demons can do and classifying them that way, I, I know just then mm -hmm. you, you you mentioned some of those things, but is there something in particular that would identify? A demonic presence as opposed to something like a you know some, like a poltergeist or or something else which is you know destructive and, and intimidating absolutely so i actually have a acronym for this epim evil presence intensity and malice those are the things that you'll find in every single demonic narrative that exists but it's really that you have to feel you are in the presence of evil for me to start to ask you more questions about that. I mean, I'll still listen to people's experiences. Of course I will. But feeling like you were in the room with something that wanted to hurt you, that made you terrified, made you every cell in your body want to run, that's what I look for. Because other narratives of um, different spirit types they do not feature that. That's the one thing that really like makes them stand out. And then we have intensity. So the intensity of a demonic infestation will be about a 20 on a 10 point scale. 
a poltergeist, for instance, because I looked into the Enfield poltergeist haunting because unfortunately the conjuring two had done something with that and the demon was not involved in that case and i wanted to make sure that people knew that so um poltergeist seemed to be i mean i'm i'm of the mind that i think it might be pk energy released from the girls who were in the house who were going through puberty and then there were other spirits in the house it seemed like that were using that energy to produce miracles, but they were of more like a trickster nature or just, you know, pranks. They didn't truly try to hurt any of these people. A demon will always try to hurt people. They hate people. So that's how you know, like, and then that goes into the next thing, which is malice. And the intensity is gonna be much, much worse with a demon. So if you don't have those three things, you definitely do not have a demon in your life. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I With poltergeists, I tend to find that even though they are destructive, a lot of the time it will almost be like a, in a bad way, a playful energy. It'd be like something that's sort of trying to get your attention, almost like a um, immature personality has emerged somehow and so yeah i I completely get that the the difference there but but when it comes to evil i suppose that's something that i imagine is why we there's often this connection between demons and and religion how i mean in your own research does there seem to be a connection between people who've experienced uh, demonic activity and are they usually from a religious background? Is that some sort of connection that usually seems to exist? Actually, no. Mm. Most people who end up having um, demonic interaction of any kind, it almost—I mean, it's not almost always like it. There are varying levels of religious faith. Um, there are people who have had interactions with them that were very, very religious. There are people who were just sort of like, we go to church, but we don't necessarily believe in the supernatural religious. Um, And then there are atheists, like it really kind of is across the board, but it's not as common for people um, who are of faith to be having these problems. Although it really has to do also with law of attraction invitation and already inhabited so the case i'm thinking of as far where they were really religious i believe something was already living there when they moved in so in that case they sort of encroached on the demon's territory and that's why it was given permission to sort of get involved in their life because demons can't just come in that's something that a lot of people fear and they really can't just come into your life. Um, then there's the law of attraction, which means that you're doing something so sick and wrong and against your own humanity that it's drawing it to you, that dark energy. So you become like a beacon for demons. And then there's the law of invitation where you open the door wide and say, come on right in, usually by using dark magic, um, to have the demon do your bidding or um, now Ouija boards are one of those things that I don't think is a 
true doorway. I think a lot of spirits posture and pretend that they're demons to maybe freak people out. Um, but there are supposedly, I don't really use them, but um, safe ways to use Ouija boards that you always have to end the session and do everything correctly. Otherwise, a door could be accidentally left open. So everybody's like, oh, never use a Ouija board. And it's like, if you feel you know how to use it, then I don't believe it's a threat. It's like I use the chainsaw metaphor. If you don't know how to use a chainsaw, it's going to be dangerous. You know what I mean? Hmm. So did that answer your question? I'm sorry. I got kind of <laughs> lost there. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, it, it it really does. I It's interesting that you, you mentioned one way someone can draw a, this sort of enti entity to them is is by requesting it through like a, a magical ritual mm -hmm. religion and magic seem to be i suppose when, when i think of with demons is that they're the they're the two areas where it seems like this these entities have a sort of a they're categorized i guess so you have grimoires that have demons in them and there's you know goetic magic and mm -hmm. in the catholic church there's the the, the roman ritual uh, things like that. Um, and I guess this is sort of going a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier, but I, when it comes to contextualizing demons, how best do you go about doing that? And I, and I know, you know, we can't, like, like you said, we don't really know what demons are, but have you found a, I guess, a, a safe way to sort of understand what they are without sort of with, without being influenced too much by the context that they have magically and religiously. Do you mean in terms of um, protecting myself or? Yeah, because with, with, with something like demons, there's, they have such a, a long history and, you know, I, I can completely understand how you could sort of find yourself doing certain things because that is what you think is the best way to, to safely try and understand them well it calling in a demon is actually a lot more like complicated than people think it is like like we said like the it's like a very complicated magical ritual to call one into your life um but as far as protecting myself against demons they because every single time you get involved in um, demonic work of any kind they say like this is something that kind of goes around uh, the demonology community which I'm not technically a demonologist I don't really do what they do um, but I am part of that like community they say you have to be called you have to be chosen to do this and the reason for that is that people become obsessed with that the darkness of the subject and it ends up infiltrating their lives so in that way and they aren't protected from it because they weren't called that's the theory anyway um the way that i personally protect myself is really mostly through psychic ways because there are times especially when i was doing thesis work and trying to get my book out into the world 
where I felt psychologically pressed on. Like it almost felt like a very physical presence. But I think also something about having been possessed before has alerted me to the things that could possibly go wrong and what that looks like and what that feels like. So I'm a lot stronger now, I would say. I'm not sure if that makes any sense. This is just sort of what I've learned, but I also use all sorts of things like crystals and incense, but those are more related to my psychic stuff. So really the way that I would say anybody can protect themselves against demons is to be as happy and healthy as you possibly can. Keep your home as clean as you can. Don't let like dirt and dust and desiccation collect because um, other dark entities besides demons are attracted to that sort of thing, right? And then being as healthy as you can, mind, body, spirit, because those are the things that ultimately drive them off. The reason that people go through horrific infestation, oppression, and then possession narratives is because that they're, they're resisting that presence coming into them. If they just open the door, because some people do this, this happens in possession narratives. If they just like surrender to this power that maybe they don't understand or maybe has fooled them, it gets in a lot easier and they don't go through the stages of oppression. So you have to keep your will strong. Mm. Right. Yeah. I, I, I suppose I think what I was trying to get at is just that do you find that approaching the, the study of demons from a, from a folklore perspective and a context is that have you found that it's given you some distance from the subject matter that's healthy as opposed to, you know, looking at them from a from a different viewpoint, such as through ritual magic or religion? I suppose so, although I also looked at ritual magic and the occult. I've looked into everything um, because I want a well-rounded understanding of everything I possibly can from each religious perspective, including that of demonologers, people who worship demons. Um, but... I, I would say that, yeah, overall, like if somebody was interested in this, folklore is probably the safest route, although they may have interference. Because here's the thing, demons don't want to be known. They don't want to be exposed. So whenever people start like a demonic book of some kind, any subject within demonology, they tend to start being messed with. So that's just my warning to people that be aware of that and try to protect yourself in your own religion as best you can and your health. Hmm. You mentioned Ouija boards there a little while ago, and that's a, a trope of many a creepypasta and spooky movie. Uh, but mm -hmm. are they a good case in point of being careful in how you interact with not just demons, I suppose, but the unknown, the other world? I think, honestly, people should exercise caution in any dealings with the paranormal, especially if you don't know what you're dealing with right away. Um, it The Ouija board is simply a tool. 
much like tarot cards or other forms of divination or even like um, spirit boxes. So if you don't know how to use it, yes, it could be potentially dangerous. But if you do your research and you learn everything you can about it, I don't see why it would be. It's just sort of like people need to understand that lots of people use them and there's no problems, but it's because they knew how to use them. But yeah, it is unfortunately a huge trope in movies, especially because of satanic panic, where people are like, oh my gosh, if you use a Ouija board once, a demon's going to come in and it's like demonic infestation of any kind is actually very rare so rare that a lot of people haven't come across them who even work in this field like um, deliverance ministers and all sorts of things many of them haven't seen a real demon so it's something to keep in mind that there's no way there's a demon at the end of every single ouija board session Mm, yeah so um demonic infestation is that more than one entity or can it just be one it can be one or many um it seems that they invite their friends um right. <laughs> that's just kind of what it seems like sometimes but it really depends on the case at times it's a specific demon but yeah when i refer to anything as uh, demonic infestation it just means that a demon is there right yeah okay um so your your research and you know you've got a a book coming out soon uh looks at more um modern cases um in in terms of modern folklore what role does pop culture play in that and and is it is it something that um you've found has had a role in the sort of things that people experience and and how they are understood culturally in in modern times. Yeah, unfortunately, pop culture and paranormal television and all of these things have a huge impact on the way that people understand demons because they believe very genuinely that every single negative supernatural experience is a demon. Mm -hmm. And that is hugely wrong. Like, it's categorically wrong. It's not good as far as satanic panic because there are marginalized groups such as witches, pagans, Satanists who get a bad rap when actually I found them to be very kind and loving people. So people then become afraid of these people. And then we have a resurgence of satanic panic where we had people going to jail just because they were a little weird and they got blamed for some horrific crime that they did not commit. Um, Because satanic panic had gotten so bad in the 80s. And we're seeing it sort of again today, and that's why the paranormal community is really committed to trying to undo that narrative of every single thing is a demon, especially if it's negative. Sometimes a spirit does not want to be bothered, and people forget that. Maybe they don't like that you're in their space. Maybe they view it as theirs. Maybe they're trying to protect it. And then people will come back crying, oh my gosh, I just saw a demon. And you see this a lot, especially with like YouTubers and um, all sorts of things. 
and paranormal TV, certain television shows, every single thing's a demon. And it's created this really harmful narrative of fear because people now fear that demons are a lot more common than we thought they were. And the truth is they're not common at all. So it, it's just this perpetuating cycle in movies and TV where people are bombarded with this imagery of, oh yeah, demons are everywhere. And the fact is they are not. Hmm. When people come to me, because people still email me, which is fine. Um, I'm always willing to listen to people's experiences because I am interested in all types of experiences. Um, and they'll tell me like, yeah, I had this thing and I think it might be a demon and I have to tell them, no, that's not a demon. And this is why, but that's how pervasive that narrative is. And it has unfortunately changed the landscape of the paranormal as a field of study. So what I'm trying to do with my book is set people straight a little bit and also show them, here's all the information that I've collected that shows me what to look for in these narratives. And if you really think that a demon is messing with your life, go through this uh, checklist and physically write on it each time something's happened. The more checks you have, the more likely you do have a, a demon. So that it's really meant to help my research. Yeah. So is there a, a time period that your book and the research that goes into that covers? Is there sort of a starting point that for what you termed as a modern experiences and 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 that sort of thing let's see i believe it's either 60s or 70s um that it starts it could even be 50s i didn't specifically look at time periods i just realized that when i was um about to send it to the publisher that i only looked at cases from maybe the past 50, 60 years or so, hmm. that it really wasn't super broad. Now, because I'm writing my gin book right now, and I'm looking at um, antiquity and modern experiences, I realized that I had to make that known that I was just looking at more modern, because those are the ones that are published. Oh, nope, I remember. So the earliest is actually the Roland Doe case. So it's 1940s. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I did see that uh, on your website. Are you happy to go just go through that case? It seems like a, an interesting one. Yeah, no problem. So I used Troy Taylor's book on it. Uh, the devil came down to St. Louis it, because he really waded through the folklore to try to find the truth. And, um, it's unclear how this spirit came into his life, how this demon came in, because I do believe that particular case was a demon. Um, but it did somehow come in. And he was really just sort of like, at first it was sort of trickster energy. He would be sort of like lifted off of chairs and slid onto the floor. There'd be like knocking and tapping, that sort of thing. And then over time, what it sounds like to me is that another very high level demon joined the party and began to torment him. And um, he would go into trances 
every single time he was about uh, to have that presence come out. And it was, yeah, it was a very fascinating case um, that, yeah, I think became very sensationalized in the media because it was really like one of the first times that people had heard of something like this happening in the modern age or more modern age, right? Um, so, yeah, there were a lot of really interesting things about that case, like the fact that this demon, like, like you see in The Exorcist, that probably comes from that case. I know that The Exorcist is actually based off of that case, but he could like spit vomit from all the way across the room and hit um, the priest and his assistants in the face. Wow, okay. Like all sorts of strange things. Yeah, it was a very, it was a fascinating case. Um, but yeah, so I use that heavily for the possession classification system because when I did my original one, I wasn't that interested in possession. And the, to be honest, I'm still not. It's something I think that has been done in media too much. But there were very fascinating um, similarities between cases. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the trances were very interesting, unnatural strength, unnatural knowing, all sorts of things that I came across as I was doing this research. And the original classification system was addressing encroachments. This is when a, a demon's trying to find a foothold in your life. A infestation when they've kind of moved in and they've started to create chaos. Oppression when they single someone out for possession and then eventually possession. I felt the first few of them, of those steps were different because the phenomena is happening around you. When you're possessed, the phenomena emits from you. So I felt it needed a different system and the fact that you know the public is so interested in that, I felt I had to do my due diligence and create a different classification system so that people could see that unless all of these things are happening, you're probably not possessed because people seem to really fear that. Hmm. And Roland Doe was, he was a teenager, wasn't he, I think? Mm -hmm. He was 14. Poor kid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is age a, a factor in these sorts of cases or are demons not choosy in terms of that sort of thing? I mean, I'm going to be honest, I really don't think they're very choosy. They don't seem to target children as much. Um, like they target them, I think, in terms of like trying to scare the parents. But what seems to be, they seem to go for adults or there are a few cases of teenagers, but I don't think it's really a factor. I think it, they just are going to take whoever's either the most psychologically vulnerable. And this is a theory I'm working on, so it's not fully substantiated yet or possibly the person who has the most psychic talent mm. because psychics let in more. So my thought is that if you're accidentally open, like in some way, and you have that opening through your psychic abilities, they, they start to mess with you. It's why I don't call myself a real demonologist because I don't go into those places. If I feel something dark, I'm not walking in there. And it's because I know for a fact 
they will use my abilities against me and I will get very, very sick. Right, yeah. Like I could pass out and then it's like, how am I helping anybody? So yeah, it's just probably best that I don't do that, but I'm not afraid of them and I'm not afraid of these places. Like you'll be afraid when you're standing in front of one, of course, but everything I've learned, um, I think understanding helps us to not be afraid. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, in, in your research, have you found any cases where the demonic entity seemed to be drawn to a place rather than a person? I, I know earlier you mentioned that they, it's best to sort of keep your home tidy because they, they, they like untidiness and things like that. And is, have there been any cases where it seems like a building or a place had some sort of more of an attraction to these sorts of beings? It seems like it, although nothing specific is coming to mind. Um, it, it could even be something like there is energy here in this place that they're attracted to. Um, other times it's very like random, maybe an old house, maybe somebody did something really sick and wrong there and they became attracted to it. Or perhaps it's in a state of desiccation and ruin. And they're attracted to it too, but so are jinn. Jinn and other types of spirits can be attracted to um, ruins because it's a very liminal space. It's neither fully here or there, right? Because it's falling apart. Right, yeah. So, yeah, like I think there is a connection, but I don't think I've found like the answer to that just yet. It's just something I'm going to have to look deeper into, but there's definitely a connection to places. Um, my, I already have several books of mine uh, planned out. One of them is going to be called Possessed Places, where I'd like to investigate um, how some even full towns have energy that is very dark and sort of like collected, almost like... Um, you know, the Stephen King's it, like Pennywise in the sewers, just sort of like feeding on the town, that sort of thing. Wow. Okay. So maybe I'll be able to answer that then. No, that's, that sounds fascinating. I mean, one thing I think you can say about, you know, reading about demons and these sorts of cases is what, what is it about us that, that attracts them? I, and I don't, I don't want to get back to, to what demons are <laughs> um but, <laughs> but I, I i do wonder like what is it that draws them to us what is it about humans that they find so alluring i guess or, or that they want to mess with us they want to do these sorts of things it seems to be hatred some kind of hatred for humanity um because nothing they do is anything short of malicious it's always designed to make people go crazy, to make people feel like they're going crazy and to hurt us. Um, so there's that, but also there are theories that maybe when they're possessed, they're almost like alive and they can experience the things that humans can. Mm. I'm not sure I believe that, to be honest. I don't think demons care. Um, just based off all my research, but 
it does seem it also like there's this misconception in the world that demons are trying to collect souls i don't think they do that um because they mostly seem to deal in death they seem to want to cause death not murder because I don't believe every demon can do that based off of the possession classification system. There's only been maybe five cases where somebody was definitely possessed at the time of a murder. It would be a lot more um, present in the system if that was like something that was happening on a regular basis. Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah, so I just don't think they're able to do such things certain things at any time that they want hmm. but it, yeah it is interesting what you say there i i do sometimes ponder on the theory that that supernatural not just demons but supernatural entities that that mess with humans are envious of our agency like humans don't have complete knowledge but we have we can do stuff and <laughs> perhaps demons and you know, gods and things like that have they have complete knowledge but they can't they can't act on it and maybe that's where the hatred comes from and uh, you know like and going back into classical times uh, gods would often mess with humans mm-hmm. do horrible things to them or that's a different subject <laughs> but it but it, it is but, but it does seem for their own amusement essentially yeah yeah absolutely it is, it, it is a theory that i i do find intriguing mm-hmm it's hard to say, though, we really don't know enough, I feel like, to even really begin to crack that one, although I have my own theories, just based off everything that I've done. And I don't, I don't think demons want to be alive, or want to be us. But they seem to hold some type of grudge. Now, if we go back into the religious interpretation of that, it's even possible, like, if we go to the Christian interpretation, which is, like, the war in heaven, and um, the the demons were originally angels and were cast out with Lucifer, who became Satan, um, they, maybe they blame us for being cast out, or they hate us because we're lesser than them, but God loves us more. It really depends on what you believe. Um Personally, my personal belief is that some of them might be fallen angels and some of them are things that were already present on earth that decided to take a side. But that's my own personal religious beliefs. So it's like nobody has to listen to that. That's just what I personally think from my research and my own background. No, I I, I think I'm of a, I'm a similar mind talking about that. It- and this is going back into pop culture, but it just makes me think of the the TV show Supernatural, where mm-hmm. <laughs> angels are <laughs> angels are often absolute a holes. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, no. yeah. I, I love that show, but um, <laughs> um, but yeah. So something we you've touched on a little bit is your own classification system based on senses, and I found that really interesting. How did you develop that? I was trying to figure out how people perceive demons. Like, what are the senses that come into play? Um, And I had gotten a question when I went to my first and only um, academic conference. I didn't have a good time. (laughs) But um, somebody had asked a really interesting question about, like, how do you determine 
those categorizations like what about balance what about memory and the truth is those things can all sort of be like joined into feeling because we sense things through like our feelings but also through how something feels so i tried to just break it down into the into four things that seem to come into play with every single time a demonic narrative is being told. And often what comes up is, you know, when we got to the house or the apartment or whatever space it is, I felt something was wrong. I felt something very evil was there. I didn't want to go in. So I paid attention to how people described it. And that's how I developed that. So feeling became all sorts of things. It became like injuries. It became cold, you know, like anything a person could feel, that's how feeling developed. And then there was smell, sound, and sight, because um, those are the main things that we use to perceive our world and the supernatural world. It's all we really have at our disposal. Psychic things are a little more difficult to prove, so they weren't included. Mm -hmm. And is, is that in terms of the experiences people have when it comes to encountering a, a, a demonic presence, a, does it follow a pattern in terms of how they experience that through the senses? Does it more often than not begin with smell or sight or, or touch? So I've found that like, and this isn't every single narrative, but most of them tend to start off this way. They have the feeling something is wrong. They tell themselves they're imagining it. It's just a creepy old house or what have you. And they push forward and they try to ignore it. Or maybe they try to ignore a room where they feel it most intensely. And they just go on with their daily lives. And then things start to happen that involve like sound and smell and strange things keep happening, but they can't physically see them yet. But they tell themselves like, oh, it's just, you know, like regular life. Like, oh, maybe I misplaced this. Or even when they know that something strange is happening, a lot of people don't want to admit that it's supernatural in nature. Um, and then it's only when they see it, they see something, they see a big, usually a big dark shadow, blacker than black, um, usually higher than five feet tall. So then they begin to go, okay, okay, maybe this is something supernatural, but most people will not land on demons. Mm. It's not, I think though what's happening now is that because they're so prevalent, people land there quicker now. In these older cases, people were like, okay, something supernatural is happening. Maybe we have a ghost, you know, or something else. They didn't land on demon quite as often but now everything's a demon so people just sort of assume everything is yeah it's interesting with the system that you have uh it works because i imagine quite a few people experiencing you know, shadow people for example but they won't have the other things like the bad smells and the other aspects of a manifestation so i can see how it it definitely works in in that regard yeah, shadow people are a difficult one because 
it, it's just it's going to have to be a separate system of mm -hmm. me looking into shadow people experiences. Maybe that'll be another book of mine. I can add it to the list because <laughs> <laughs> I've got a, a gen one. I'm going to be looking at um, extraterrestrial abductions and sightings for my next book after the gen one. And then um, I'm going to look at Dibukim from Jewish folklore and yeah, just all sorts of stuff. But shadow people is definitely up there because they are such a strange phenomenon. So I'm, I'm personally very interested in what I'll find the commonalities. Yeah. I mean, from my own experience, I've only seen them in that point in time between like, just as you're waking up, like between being asleep and waking up and, mm -hmm. um, and, and I know that some people see them like when they're fully awake. Just so I, I know that yeah, within the shadow people context, there's a there's a range of different experiences. That sounds a little more like the old hag Mara experience. Have you ever read the work of David Hufford? I know the book. I haven't read it, but um, but yeah. So so yeah, in in the experiences I've had, there's been something standing in the corner of my bedroom a general mm -hmm. tall shape I haven't had the feeling of anything sat on my chest or anything like that but I know that in the hag experience there's again there, there, there often is something in the corner of the room as well as the hag entity so so mm -hmm. yeah but yeah again with the the system you have with the senses then this is a way of determining that it's not a demonic presence <laughs> I mean hopefully not right <laughs> yeah yeah hopefully but I mean, oh, yeah. it is, I like to think of the senses as the way that they're informing how we understand this and they are limited, unfortunately, but, you know, clearly you're seeing something and you're feeling something about it, right? Like maybe you can't move and it's just standing there staring at you. Maybe it says something. It's hard to say, but it would be able to, like with later classification systems that I'm going to create. Um, it'll help you figure out, is it a shadow person or is it this maybe instead? Because maybe another, what do you call it, uh, entity does that same thing, right? Maybe it's from the Philippines. Maybe it's from uh, Austria, right? Every single place has its demons and has its own like bevy of spirits. So... It's just, it's going to be a lot of work to try and classify them. But I think it's worth it because they're, the more that we can classify, the more we understand. And then the less we fear, because there is a lot of fear around the supernatural. And I don't, because of my psychic abilities, I don't really feel very afraid of the supernatural. A lot of the times it's kind of annoying when it happens, you're just kind of like, what, what now? What do you want? <laughs> or you feel kind of like, really? Like, I don't have time for this. Like I was clocking in at work once and something sort of like, I just got the feeling I wasn't alone. And I was like, what? I am, this is not the time, man. <laughs> so it's just one of those things that I just sort of like, I'm like, what do you want? But and other people who have those experiences as well probably feel very similarly, or there are even times that um, the supernatural can be very calming and very 
wonderful as an experience. We call that um, re-enchantment. Yeah. Having an experience that reaffirms the things that you believe about life and maybe death as well in folklore. So, yeah, like there are times that that happens, but for the most part, people who handle the supernatural a lot were just kind of like, dude, what do you want? (laughs) So... I think if we could get there as a society and get more like less afraid and more interested, although there's a lot of interest already, but I want to tamp down on that fear because I think it's getting out of control. And unfortunately people are scaring themselves thinking they have a demon when maybe they just have an angry ghost or a Dybbuk or something else that has to be handled in a different way. The difference is that like demons seem to be allergic to Christian iconography. They, they hate it. They'll destroy it if they can. Um, With other entities, it's just more like, it's kind of like breaking your left arm and then putting a cast on the right one (laughs) and hoping that that'll fix it. It just, it's not going to work because if this is something else, it's obeying, it's being bound by different rules. Yeah. Demons are bound by the Bible. So, I mean, it it sort of lends that credibility to the religious interpretation because it is very clear they hate Christian iconography, possibly worse than they hate humans because they flip out when like, a cross or a Bible or something is in the room with them. Or when you bring somebody in maybe to bless the the house, they will flip out like always. Now I looked into the Annalise Michelle case, which was a very tragic case um, because I did not initially believe that she had demons. The reason I didn't think that is because being the slightly creepy person that I am, I was listening to her, um, her recordings on YouTube um, of her exorcism, and it didn't sound to me like a demon. And I don't know if this is something everyone else can do, but I know when it's a demon because of what I call the spine separating effect. You want to separate your body as soon as you can from whatever you're listening to. Hmm. that's how you know it's a demon when it's not it'll just sound weird to you and it might send a shiver up your spine but it's not like i need to turn this off and get away from here so hers didn't sound like that it actually sounded to me more like the same person her um who possibly maybe had identity disturbance dissociative identity disorder Um, and maybe some religious trauma. So I looked into it thinking it was that. It was very clear something supernatural was actually happening. But I now think it might have been a djinn. Right. And that's why they couldn't exercise it. Because there were some passages that sort of got to it. And you got to remember there's overlap between Christianity and Islam. Mm. Because they're all Abrahamic religions. But... They, it wouldn't come out after a while. And that was the thing that made me go, okay, this, this can't be a demon because when you are bade 
to come out, to talk, to, you know, do something in the name of God and it was a demon and you don't do it, that's not right. That's not a demon. So I think hers might have been a jinn. And her in her phenomena was not as intense as a demon tends to get. So um, I went into that very deeply for an article for American Paranormal Magazine in the November 2022 issue. So that that was that piece of phenomena that made me go, okay, this can't be a demon because demons always have to obey. And my personal guess as to why that is, is that they are bound by rules because they are so much more powerful than us. They could easily kill us. So some type of universal or rules by God or whatever people believe are in place to make sure that they can't. Unless they're invited or attracted or, you know what I mean? Or you invade their territory, that sort of thing. There are ways around it. Or if it's sent after you. Yeah. No. And with Jin, are they, because I, I the Annalise Michelle case, that was in Germany, wasn't it? So, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess Jin aren't limited to the Islamic world. I don't think any spirit is actually... Um, because if you think even just like spirits being a- attached to people and then maybe they cross the Atlantic or the Pacific, then suddenly they're in a new place. I think um, they're actually a little more widespread. So she had gone to a place, this shrine of some kind, and I think maybe a djinn might have been lurking there. And that's maybe when she had contact with it. Right. And jinn don't obey the same rules as demons. They don't need all of these different things to come in. It appears that they need to find weakness within you of some kind, more like illness usually, or um, some sort of maybe spiritual weakness. She was she was very spiritually strong, but it's hard to say. I'm not sure how it got in because I'm still trying to figure out how jinn get in in the first place with my research. But it, they don't follow the same rules. And it, I think it may have been a chance encounter. But um, she developed epilepsy soon after whatever this experience was. And there was no reason when they did her autopsy that she should have, that she could have had epilepsy that they could tell from her brain. And um, she did not die of hunger which is what is mostly thought or dehydration. I think very simply she gave up and that's not to say at all that she's weak, but that it was too much for her to keep fighting and she lost the will to live. Yeah. Cause her body was fine. Yeah. I mean, completely understand. Yeah. So those are the things that I look for, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. So we're almost out of, time victoria but i know that you've got a a new book coming out very soon called the black house do you want to just talk a little bit about that and when it's out and how people can get hold of it sure so it is available through hearascream.com store um, in physical copy and kindle it's also available on amazon it is called the black hours modern demonic experiences and folklore um 
yeah, it's just basically like a expanded classification system with plenty of examples to show people all the different ways that this sort of phenomena manifests. It has the checklist system so that if you really think a demon's bothering you, you just check off anything that has happened to you. Um, and just a way to dispel a lot of that anxiety and fear around demons because they are not very common at all. Hmm. So just my way of trying to help the public understand, but not just the public. It's also made for paranormal investigators who think that perhaps they've come across a demon um, so that we can build that better understanding because even in the paranormal community, there is still confusion about what makes a demon a demon. How do you recognize it? Hmm. Some people, they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> they just want views. <laughs> it makes me think of um, Tobin's spirit guide from Ghostbusters. <laughs> like that. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, eventually I'm going to have my series of Tobin spirit <laughs> guides. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, it'll be out on Halloween. Nice. But it's actually going to, yeah, me and my publisher picked that. And then it's actually out a few days early if you go on Amazon Kindle. I believe it's available on the 27th. Lovely. Well, Victoria, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Of course. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. You asked some really good questions. Thank you. If people want to find out more about your work alongside your book, how best do they do that? So most of what I work under is um, just my moniker, Demon Folklorist. I also have a podcast called that. Like everything's under that, including my um, horror analysis writing because I write about horror movies. So yeah, my body of work, if you just Google Demon Folklorist, should be able to be found. Also, I have my website, demonfolklorist.com, and I have a new website that I'm still in the process of setting up the novelty shop.blog. That's where I write about folklore and uh, horror movies. Excellent. Well, I'll put that information in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you, Victoria. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Victoria. It's taken a while to cover the topic of demons on some other sphere, but I think Victoria was the perfect person to talk to on that subject. Her book, The Black Hours, is definitely worth adding to your bookshelves if you enjoyed this episode. Please also consider rating it wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on X, Blue Sky and Mastodon and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at spherehq, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, have a wonderful Halloween, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.